Today is also uh, uh, the start of a new series that we're starting called Grateful Living. Grateful Living. And it, this comes off the back of a series that we finished up last year, at the end of last year, um, exploring Ephesians. Can I have my slides up there, if it's possible? Um, exploring Ephesians. So exploring Ephesians, you remember we went through the whole book of Ephesians. It's the capstone of Paul's work. It's the capstone of, of his thinking. It's not Romans. It's not Galatians. He has come to the end of his ministry as an a relatively, uh, um, you know, well-worn missionary, and he writes the book of Ephesians, bringing all of the strands of his theology together, bringing up all of these beautiful, rich thoughts of the discipleship uh, process and how we become children of the Son of God and what that means for us as Christians in the book of Ephesians. And so if you've missed that, you can just go on our YouTube channel and check it out. But essentially, we saw that the book of Ephesians has two major sections to it. Ephesians chapter 1, 2, 3, the first three chapters speaks about the believer's position in Christ, meaning who you are. So it talks about being adopted by the Father, reconciled by the Son, and sent by the Spirit with purpose, right? So it speaks about who you are. It talks about the doctrine. It explains the theology. It speaks about your identity. And then in chapter three, it speaks, Paul prays a prayer, and he says, therefore, and he starts this prayer that leads into this, the believer's practice because of Christ. So he starts off and he says, let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you about your identity, your belonging, and your purpose. Let me sketch that for you, who you are in Christ. And he he maps that out so that we fully know that we're adopted into the family of Christ. That is who we are. He, Father, not, we don't call God, God. We call God Father, an intimate term because of what Jesus has done for us. And therefore, we now have rights, but also responsibilities because we're now in the household of God, because we're in the family of God, right? And that's what the whole book is about. Now, this is a, and then we kind of went into the practicality of that from chapter four to chapter six. Now, this series is a follow-up in a sense on that in a lot more practical fashion. Grateful living is this idea that we are grateful for what God has done for us and we live in response to the gospel. But at the heart of it, one word that would summarize the series is the word stewardship. Stewardship. Now, we don't hear this word, or we don't really use the word stewardship. When last did you use the word stewardship in your just day-to-day conversation? We don't generally use it, right? The word stewardship is an interesting word. It comes from the the Greek word um, that's a juxtaposition of two words. um, The word oikos, which is the word for house. And the word nomos, which is the word for law or government. It is, we get the English word economy. And so the word uh, for steward or manager or treasurer comes from this idea of how to govern the house well. Now the word steward, like I said, is something that we don't use that often. But the word manager is something that we use and understand pretty well. Like if you're a manager, you manage certain things. So this whole series that we're going to go to are basically going to be reflections on where can you manage better? What are the domains that God has called you to manage well for him? Right? So stewardship, if you think about the, this series that we're going to go for, Grateful Living, think of it in the sense that God has adopted you, He has reconciled you, and now He's given you a purpose on how you need to live in this world. So He's calling you to be a steward. Well, what is stewardship? Stewardship is the act of being managers of God's economy. Let that sink in. Everything that you have is not yours. It is a gift that God has given you to manage for Him. 
your time, your treasures, your, 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 your resources, like what you have, your family, all of these things, these are merely things that God has given you to, to manage for Him. And so for the next eight weeks, or for the next few weeks, we're going to look at eight principles. And the key words of all of this is the word entrusted and privilege. The stuff that you have is a privilege to, to, to manage for God. You have a privilege given to you. And that word entrusted is God trusts you enough to say, I trust you so that you can manage this well for me because you are my son and you are my daughter. You are part of this household. So we're going to look at the eight T's of grateful living, these various domains where we can serve and, and be entrusted and have the privilege of looking after what is God's, right? And so we're going to look at time, Talents, testimony, treasure, temple, territory, tribe, and God's truth. So these are the various domains that we'll look into. And I want you to come to the point where like, you're not saying, oh, I have to do this, but wow, what a beautiful privilege that the God of the universe that keeps the universe in check and sustains everything, the God of the universe thought it well. He thought so much of you that he entrusted you with, with time. All of us have 24 hours in the day. All of us have seven days in our week. All of us have 12 months in the year. None of us have uh, less time. God entrusted all of us with that time and say, be productive. Use that time. Spend time with family. You know, he, you, he says to you, all of you are given talents. Each of you at, at least have a few talents, right? We've all been, been given a story, a testimony that we can share. We've, we all have treasures, resources that we can use. God has gifted us with all of these things. He has given us these things, entrusted it to us to manage it well. And so for the next few weeks, it's going to be practical. It's going to be stuff where you might feel uncomfortable, where you're like, oh, this, this I'm not that great at, or I need to get better at, or maybe it's going to hold up the mirror where you're going to see maybe my, my values in this domain isn't in alignment with the kingdom of God. And I need to align my values with the kingdom of God. I need to align what I thought about this domain. Right, and so that's what we'll look at. Um, and today we're going to start off with the one called tribe, looking after my tribe. And there's two main questions that I want to look at. The first one is, what is our domain? What is the domain when we talk about tribe? When we talk about being entrusted with a tribe, what does that mean? What is the domain? So the first domain, or the, first, the three domains that I want to speak about is this idea of father, family, and friends. If you think of concentric circles moving out, you start off with the most important relationship, the most important domain, and that is the one of father, in, 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 in meaning divine father, as in God. The most important relationship that you should have in your life is your relationship towards God, a covenant that you have with God. And so the first question you can ask yourself is, how are you stewarding that relationship, that tribal relationship that you have with God, being part of his tribe, being part of his family? How well are you stewarding that relationship? How much time are you investing in that relationship? How, how, what are you doing to strengthen the covenant that you have with God and that God has with you? Are you, are you building that relationship? Or are you just kind of, as, as the book of Hebrews, as we were discussing in the Sabbath school lesson, are you kind of just laying back and kind of drifting wherever the wind is blowing? So some weeks it's great and some weeks it's not great. And you're not in charge. You're kind of just drifting as the wind blows. So if it's a great sermon the week and it was a great worship service, then wow, I'm on fire. But the next week it wasn't so great and so you drift away a little bit. The, the, essentially, we're asking, are you stewarding this well? Are you taking charge of this domain? 
The second domain is that of family. And when we speak of family, it's not just your biological family. There is a certain reality as Christians that we need to realize that family is both biological but also church family. And both of these are legitimate family. It's not just I have a biological brother and I say to him, yeah, this is my brother. But Alex, who is also here, yeah, is also my, my brother in Christ. Yeah, he's just, that's just a nice saying. So when I come and I greet Alex at the door and I'm like, hey, brother, like, that's just a nice saying. No, 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 no. Like, think about this. When you have a biological brother or sister, the family that you have, well, that's because your mom and your dad came together and they made a sibling, and that is biologically connected to you. But think about the way that you are brother and sister of the family, church family. Well, that's also by blood, by the blood of Jesus. Now, think about this reality. The blood of Jesus cleansed you from your sin. How real is that reality? How real is the reality that your sin was cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Well, we'd say, yeah, 100%. That is, that is real. Yeah, well, how real is the reality that you're a brother and sister in Christ of each other? And so sometimes when we think of this idea of family, we think of immediate family is more important than my, my Christian family. When you read the scriptures, they didn't have that distinction. Because of Christ, we are now in the family, in the household of God. When we did the Ephesians series, one of the things that I mentioned there is the idea of adoption was more important to the Roman and Jewish idea than that of biological. So, especially in the Roman idea that some people would adopt somebody so that they could be the successor of their kingdom. A lot of the, a lot of the emperors would do this. The Caesar would do this. He would adopt somebody because that would be, have a severe legitimacy. We're adopted into the family by the blood of Jesus. And so, therefore, that reality that you're my brothers and sisters is not just a nice saying, but it is a reality, a biblical reality. And then the third one is friends. That's the domain that goes beyond the family circle, both biological and biblical. But the idea that they're not necessarily a part of the Christian community, but we have a movement towards them that we want to be friendly towards them. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so those are the kind of domains um, that, that we have to think about when we think about tribe. Now, I, I want to move to the second one is what is our framework? What is the reason and the framework that we love within? When we think about tribe, what is the thing that motivates and drives us and why is that? And I would suggest that these three words are, the, are, are the, the starting point and even the end point of everything that we do as Christians. This is our Christian ethics in a nutshell. God is love. First John 4 verse 8. God is love. Millard Erickson explains it this way. He says, if reality, now this might get a bit heady for some of us, uh, but just stick with me for a moment. He says, if reality, so he's speaking, and this is a book where he speaks about the Trinity, and he says that if we think about reality as we know it, right, not, not just your reality, like my reality is a certain thing and your reality is something different. He's talking about objective reality, the, the, the world that we live within. If reality is f fundamentally physical, meaning he's saying if this reality is primarily atoms and molecules moving around, well, then the primary force binding it together is electromagnetic. He says that's what this reality, this is what real metaphysical system that we're living, that's what it is. He says if, however, reality is fundamentally social, then the most powerful constituting force is that which binds persons together, namely love. Let me unpack that for you. 
Millard Erickson is writing about the Trinity and why the Trinity is important. He says, if you, take a, if you, if you, if you could like swipe reality off the table and say there's nothing, there will be still something, and that something is God. So before there was anything that existed, God was. He's always been there. And that God that was always there was a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And within them, there is a covenant. Within them, there is a community. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not just God the Father and God the Son, because there could be selfish love. There's a third party, which makes it an unselfish covenantal love between the three of them, loving each other. So the Father and the Son love each other, but the, the Father gives space to, for the Son to love something else like the Holy Spirit. And so, before there was anything created, the, 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 the architect of reality that makes and builds reality within himself is this idea of God. And within them is this covenant of love. And so, when he built reality, he built this idea, this force in reality, which is love. And so, when we want to ask, how does the world operate? What is the fundamental driving force towards stuff? It is love. And so at the, heart, at, the, at the heart of who we are as human beings, it's not just atoms and molecules floating about in us. Those things are important and those things are there and that's a reality. But ultimate reality beyond all of those things is this concept of love that drives. That's why he says in this idea, and I want you to follow this train of thought, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not um, know God uh, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's saying if you come in contact with ultimate reality, if you come in contact with what, with, uh, what is actually real, it will transform you to such a degree that you will start living in accordance to that reality. So when you come in contact with God, who is love, you will start living lovingly. And so when you're not loving people, you should ask yourself, maybe I'm not connecting to God. So when the Bible comes and says that you should love your neighbor as yourself, you should love your enemy, sometimes some of the stuff that the Bible says is impossible for us to do. We cannot love the way that the Bible requires us to love because we think that we must love, yeah, we must love. How do I love? Lola. He's not, the, the Bible is not calling us to love from yourself. It's calling you to love from God's perspective. It's calling you to love your enemy with the love of God. How do you love the people with the love of God, well, you need to be connected to God. So loving your enemies is not something that you can do by yourself. You can only do that with the love of God and by the love of God. And so the first element and the most fundamental element when we think about this idea of stewarding my tribe well is knowing that I need to be connected to the love of God. It is impossible to steward and manage my community, my family, my friends, my, all of it, without the love of God. It will crumble or it will be superficial. Ellen White says this, It is not earthly rank, nor birth, nor nationality, nor religious privilege which proves that we are members of the family of God. It is love. That's the thing. That's the, that's the mark. A love that embraces all of humanity. And that's what he speaks about this idea. Love is the thing. That's the foundational 
thing. Now, I want to speak about the story, a story that we know well, because we can speak about theology all day long, but there are certain things that when we hear it, we're like, yeah, man, that just resonates with us. That's what it means to be truly human. And this is one of those stories. Now, just a kind of raising of hands, how many of you have ever heard the story of, of Dick and Rick Hoyt? Have you ever heard the story? Yeah? I think, I think I've actually shown a, a short little clip about them a few years ago, or a few months ago. So um, this, this is Dick, and this is Rick. So Rick was born 10th of November 1962. And when he was born, he was born with the uh, umbilical cord around his neck. He was kind of suffocating. And uh, because of that, he was, he's a quadriplegic, uh, yeah, he's a quadriplegic. And he also had cerebral palsy. So when he grew up, it was a very, very tough gig for the family. And actually, when, when he was kind of growing up, the parents would take him to all of these doctors, and, and they all said to him, hey, put him, in a, like, put him in an institution, put him in a place where they can look after him. But they just, they just felt, no, that I, we can't do that. We have a responsibility towards this child. And eventually get to a, got to a doctor, and this doctor said, hey, your kid will never walk. Like, we have to be realistic about the medical condition. But treat him like a child. Treat him like your child, like a normal child. Work with him, play with him, teach him how to, to talk and all of these things. And so the mom, Judy, spent a considerable amount of time teaching me the alphabet and trying to, but he obviously couldn't talk. Until he got to, he was about 11 years old in the university, I think it was Tufts University, figured out a way how he could communicate to his parents through a computer system. And they started to realize that, that intellectually he's on par. Like there's nothing wrong with his intellect. There's nothing wrong with his brain. It is merely his body. And so he went through school. He actually graduated university. Like he did really well. When he was about 16, 17 years old, he said to his dad, who was at that point 36 years old, not the most fittest universe, person in the universe, he said to him, Dad, I would really love us to run a race, to, to um, create funds, to generate funds for another person that's quadriplegic. His dad was like, oh man, this is going to be tough. But his, his father decided to do that, took him on the run. And, and, and I think there's a picture, a picture of, I think that's the first run that they did, did the run. And he came back and he typed in his computer. He says, when, when we're running, I, my disability disappears. And that just moved his dad. And so they started doing more runs and, and, and started doing triathlons and started doing like all of these crazy things. By 2016, now, now um, Dick has died, unfortunately, uh, to, uh, last year. Um, and 2016, this was their statistics. They've done 1,130 endurance events. Now, some of us in this church, we try and do some endurance events, and we struggle just to sometimes run a 5K, right? They have done 72 marathons. Now, imagine this. This kid is probably 30, 40, 50 kilograms. Like, running a marathon is a pain. Carrying or pushing something like that, that is intense, right? He has, they have done six Ironmans. Now, an Ironman is really difficult. Anybody in the room has ever done an Ironman? You have to swim almost four kilometers, then you get on a bike for 180 kilometers, and then when you're really done with that, you get and you start running another marathon. And you do that all together. And this dad did it, pulling his boy, pulling him on a boat like that. I don't know if you've ever swam four Ks. That's difficult by itself. Pulling somebody on a boat behind you, that's really difficult. Right? Then he got on a bike, and he would push him, and then he would get something and, and, and push him on, on the run as well. How insane is that, that this father would do that? They have run the Boston Marathon 32 times. In 1992, they completed 6,000 kilometers in 45 days. That is an incredible feat, is it not? 
the dad said this. He said, he is the one who has motivated me because if it wasn't for him, um, I wouldn't be out there doing triathlons. He saw his boy and the love that he has for this boy said to him, man, I need to do this. My disability appears and he says, I will do whatever I need to do for you to feel alive when we are doing this. He said this, what I am doing is loaning Rick my arms and my legs so he can be out there competing like everybody else. One of the greatest metaphors of the church is the idea that we are the body of Christ. And once again, sometimes these metaphors are just nice little sayings. Yeah, 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 we're the body of Christ. No, what it actually means is that when you're struggling in one thing, you should have a companion piece that can help you somewhere. You are not the full body. You are just the kneecap, and you are just the big toe. And some of us are maybe the, the arm or the hand, but we are all just a part of the body. And so this dad saw his son and his love was moved him so much so that he said, what I am doing is I'm loaning my my body to him so that he can feel these things. Essentially, that's what it means to steward and manage our tribe well, is to say, how can I do that? How can I be the arms and the feet for these individuals, for these people that are close to me? Rick Hoyt, the son said this, he was my motor and I was his heart. There was this beautiful symbiotic relationship Saying that he was the motor, he was doing this stuff, but I was the reason, the motivating reason moving him. I think the gospel would have said it this way, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. This dad wasn't saying, man, I'd love to do a triathlon just because it's fun. No, 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 he's like, my boy feels alive and I will do it even if it kills me. Man, we can just end the sermon right here and say that's what it's about. That's what it means to steward our tribe well. Who is in our tribe and who should we be the arms and the feet to? Who can we assist and who can we help? Luke chapter 10, Jesus speaks about this idea. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go there, Luke chapter 10. (coughs) Don't worry, it's not a COVID cough. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus speaking here. And I want you to to once again get to the root and this idea of what motive, what what is the framework, what is the motivating factor, what is the thing that drives us as human beings? Millard Erickson said that it is love because that is what reality is about. Now, if, you, if, you, if you're not part of our community and you haven't heard this, because this is what we're about. This is what we're about as Seventh Adventists. This is what our community has been preaching for I don't know how long, is that at the root of everything is God is love. And God wants us to be people of love. And so he calls us, and his law, or the governing law of the universe is love. And we know how to operate and, and actuate that kind of love by loving God and loving our neighbors. But we kind of, kind of figure, we're kind of struggling figuring out how to do that sometimes. So God gives us 10 commandments to, to kind of make it more specific. Right? The first four is about how to love God, and the, le- the next is how to love your neighbor. But then we kind of get that wrong as well. And so Jesus comes and he re-explicates that and explains that even more. And Paul comes and explains that even more. But essentially, that's what it's about. The motivating factor of, of stewarding, imagining, managing our tribe well is just to love them. So Jesus comes here in, in John chapter 10, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 25. Now, now look what, what, what's the moving factor for this individual. He says, um, and behold a lawyer, somebody that knows the law well, the law not just as in civic law, but the biblical law, meaning the first five books of Moses. 
stood up and put, put um, Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's such a religious question. That is such a Christian question to a degree. Sometimes all that we're concerned about is our own salvation. What can I do to get salvation? I don't really care about anybody else, but what can I do to, to get salvation, or what shouldn't I do to lose salvation? And all that we care about is salvation. All that we're caring about is getting into heaven where God is more concerned in getting heaven into us. Because if heaven is in us, we will go to heaven. Right? And so he comes to Jesus to test Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? So the lawyer comes to him, and Jesus points him back to the same law. How do you read it? Now, the law is the most foundational, fundamental writings of Scripture. Right? It's the, the, the first revelation that God gave to Moses to give to the children of Israel. Right? So God, Jesus goes back to the foundation. Now, a lot, almost everything that, um, that we understand as theology is rooted somehow in the, in the Old Testament, rooted in the first five books. That's kind of the, the, the seedbed of all the major themes of Scripture. Right? So Jesus points him back to that. And he answers and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he's talking about stewardship, managing it well. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you shall live. Basically, Jesus is saying, that's what you should do. That is, at the, at the end of the day, the main thing, the core of living life is loving God and loving your neighbor. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? And that is the heart of the question of stewarding our tribes well. We always ask, but who is my neighbor? Who is my tribe? Oh, it's just the people that I like. It's just the people that I get, in, in, uh, uh, that I get on well. Uh, it's just the people of my congregation. It's, right? We always ask this question about who is my neighbor to justify ourselves, to get out of stuff. So Jesus replied, told him a story. And man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you've ever gone from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're on the wrong way. Most people saw Jerusalem as the right way to go, the city of peace, the way of righteousness. That's where you wanted to go. So this guy's going on the wrong way. So he's going from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him what? Half dead. Many times we read over this, oh, he was half dead, but that's a crucial phase. He was half dead, but it also means that he was half alive. So kind of, is the cup, cup half full or half empty? He's half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite who came to this place and saw him pass by the other side. Now, we sometimes knock the priest and the Levite for walking by and not touching this guy. But their law said that the priest and the Levite couldn't touch a person that is dead. Because if they touch somebody that is dead, they would be ritually unclean, which means that they wouldn't be able to serve in the temple. They wouldn't be able to serve. So the most probable situation was that they were in Jerusalem to serve there, especially the priest. He was there to serve and do his, you know, do his stint there. And then he would go back to his hometown. And so he would be unclean. But the problem is, is that they would only be unclean if they touched a dead person. But he wasn't dead. They only looked at the negative part of him, that he was half dead. But the Samaritan, now once again, I, wanna, I want you to just kind of get this. A Samaritan was not a good person in their eyes. Jesus is touching on the most 
touchiest subjects of all, the most touchiest subject of race between the Jews and the Israelites. Uh, sorry, the, the Israelites and the Samaritans. Think of the most horrific um, uh, uh, racial tension. Think of it as a Nazi and a Jew. Think of it as uh, a black person that has been a slave and somebody that is in the south of America when the Civil War was going on, that were for slavery. And the black person comes and serves the slave owner. It is the Jew that comes and serves the Nazi. Think of those most extreme types of, uh, of, of racism. That's what Jesus is hinting at here. It's not just somebody that likes it. It's not just somebody that gets on with each other like a Swiss and a German. Right? It's, not, it's completely different. There's a heavy tension here. And so Jesus says, suddenly a man was going to... Oh, sorry, verse 32, uh, verse 34, verse 33, sorry. But a Samaritan, as he was journeying, came to where he was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. He saw not a Jew there. He didn't see race beyond, like saying, oh, he's not of my race. He said, no, no, he is of my race. He's of the human race. But a Samaritan, uh, um, verse 34, and he went down and he bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And when he set him on his own animal, he brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out of his own denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved him to be a neighbor to the man among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Now that word mercy is an interesting word. Because mercy is sometimes translated in the Bible as kindness or mercy. Now for us, kindness and mercy is not the same thing, but in the Bible it had a very similar connotation. The word in Malachi, for instance, where it says that we should love justice um, and we should uh, you know, give mercy and walk humbly with our God. That word for mercy is the word chesed. And the word chesed is the word for compassion or kindness. And it is a word that is used specifically in the context of a covenant. So God is saying that we should have the specific kindness towards people because of the covenantal relationship that we have. In a sense, God is speaking about this idea that he has mercy towards us because he has covenantal relationship with us. So this man, to some degree, realized of a covenantal relationship of this kindness and mercy, and he says that I will give something. Somehow, he is stewarding humanity properly. He's stewarding his tribe properly. This man is of the human race, not of the race that hates me. He is a human being. He is somebody that I will give something. It's not my money. It is God's money. I will give this as much as I need to give this because I am merely stewarding it well. What would Jesus do if he was in this situation? Now, this story has been used many times to show that Jesus was the man that came and found us on the road, beaten and robbed. And that he is the good Samaritan that comes and puts us on his donkey and takes us to the inn, the church. And so this story becomes a story, a parable, that asks us the question, how do we steward our tribe? How do we deal with people? How do we use our resources and our time? Is it an inconvenience? Oh man, I, I really have a meeting to go to. Oh, I really have another function to go to. I don't want to stop it. This is going to inconvenience me. This is going to take something from me. It means I have to go back there and see how he's doing and check that up. No, no. Somehow Jesus is saying that's at the heart of Christianity. You want to steward and manage people well? Follow the story of a good Samaritan. 
Reminds me of this verse in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, where it says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Once again, the law and the prophets. Going back to that idea that we are governed by this one law, this one rule, this reality that is moved by love, the ethics, the, the golden rule, whatever you want to call it. And so we live in this world where we see that the opposite of this is happening. Right, the great controversy of, of, of that, that's playing off in our tribes. We see the God's blueprint versus Satan's counterfeit. God's blueprint is that you're not your brother's keeper and that your number one priority is just yourself. So don't care about everybody else. But once again, the Bible, moving on that, on that idea of the Good Samaritan, moving on that golden uh, rule ethic, says that we shouldn't think that way. Look at this verse in Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, he's speaking to the Christian community. He says, brothers, if, ever, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So if you see somebody doing something that is not good for them, you should restore them. You should go speak to them. Not just say, well, it's not my problem. You know, there's a Polish proverb that says, not my circus, not my monkeys. Right? That's us most of the time. Not my circus, not my monkeys. I'm not going to get involved. It's not my tribe, it's not my people, it's, not, it's all about me. Right? But he says, go there with gentleness. This is, the, this is the work that is called for all of us to do. But then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. So remember that you're just as weak as this individual. You're not a superhuman that can't go and, and not be tempted and not fall into sin. Remember that who you are as well, that you're a sinner as well. So go with that and be, be, be weary, uh, be, be watchful. And then he says, bear one another's burdens. What does that mean? Thoughts and prayers. Does it mean that? People struggling, arch, thoughts and prayers, but we don't really care. It says, bear one another's burdens. Be their arms and their legs. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Can you see the scriptures going back to that idea again of the law of Christ? Constantly speaking about this idea because that's the thing that governs us. That's the thing that motivates us. That's the one that drives us. The second point, that you are responsible to provide for your family, especially in tough times. You're saying, no, 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 we don't have to. We should rather follow Satan's counterfeit. Always let others provide for themselves, just like you have. Like, let them provide for themselves. Let them do their thing. At the heart of Israel's worship every day was this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So once again, it comes back to this idea of this idea that God is love. This idea of the covenant between the Trinity, the idea that they are these three persons coming together and there's love amongst them. The, the term there is the term perichoresis, where they move around each other, coming close to each other, constantly about each other. So it says here, Israel, remember first God. And then he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Once again, giving up us that principle. And then he says, these are the words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall buy them as a sign in your hand and you shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this gives this idea that I should look after my family, that in the immediate tribe and that of my church family. So if you're a parent, look after your children. That's your main responsibility. Many times... We want other people to disciple our children into Christ. That's your work as a parent. If you you have parents, your responsibility is towards them still. I read a statistic the other day, um, and I can't recall it now and I couldn't find it, but basically 
uh, the statistic was talking about, now this is a uni- uh, America's statistic, but how many people, when they get married, just move away from their parents and just don't care about them anymore? And I thought, how bad is that? How many people are sitting in old age homes and retirement villages that never hear from their children, never connect with them? Our Christian responsibility is to look after our parents, to look after our children, to connect with our siblings, to make sure that there, there is a responsibility towards them. Ellen White writes this. She says, You may aid your children to develop characters that will not be swayed or influenced to do evil, but will sway and influence others to do right. Last week we spoke about whether you're a thermostat or a thermometer. As a parent, you have that responsibility as a steward, to manage that within your household, within your, with, with your children, so that they will be thermostats, not just thermometers. But by your fervent prayers, by faith, you can move the arm that moves the world. Now, I want to mention that as well, that as a church family, that is also our responsibility. So our children in our church is also our responsibility to look after them and to help out and to assist. This is a radical kind of thinking to what we're used to. Our radical kind of thinking is that we come to church to get a sermon, to engage in Sabbath school, to build fellowship, and then we go home. We have become so consumeristic in our Christian culture that we church hop to the church that preaches the sermons that we want to hear, plays the music that we want to hear. I, I, I sent a quote to the, to the elders this week of this um, tweet where this individual said that we have become so consumeristic in our church culture that we go to the church that preaches the message that we want to hear, we go to the uh, church that plays the music that we want to hear, uh, you know, do all of these events that we want to go to, but would we go to church if it was the 12 disciples, these ragamuffin uh, disciples, would we go then? Would we be connected then? If it wasn't just about consumerism and what we get from it, but how much we give. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be getting something at church. You should. You should be fed and you should be nourished and you should build fellowship. But you should also be giving. You, should also not, you shouldn't be a consumer but a contributor. Ask yourself, how are you managing that? Are you managing your church family well, your, your immediate family household well, your parents? Your, how are you doing in that domain, in that realm? Ellen White writes in Adventist Home, our work for Christ is to begin in the family, in the home. There is no missionary field more important than this. 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is such a, I, I, I didn't even believe that this was, was in the Bible when I, I saw it the first time. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A tough one, isn't it? It speaks to this idea that there's a responsibility on our shoulders. It's not just me and myself in, in this world. The Lord has not called you to neglect your home. He never works in this way, and He never will. The third point there, we should love and cherish our spouse just like Christ loves the church. Focus on ensuring that your spouse cares for your needs. Sometimes we have so many marriages that are struggling, and when you start to speak to them and speak to engage with them, then you start to see that it's, oh, but they're not doing this, and they're not doing this, and they're not this idea, and la, 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 la. But are you loving like the church? Are you loving the way that Jesus loves the church? Are you giving yourself in such a sacrificial manner towards your spouse? Do unto others as you would have them do to you, or do you say, ah, oh, it's a dog, dog, dog eats dog world, and so I will look at myself at, at all costs. Or, the last one, or not or, and, I am to love and care for my neighbor, neighbor even if I live in another town or a country, just as I love and care for myself. 
I think we, we get this sometimes as a community. I think that in this, in this Kingsliff community, we do so well in our community. Just, you know, last week I was preaching at the Uniting Church last Sunday, and they came to us and they're like, thank you so much for these gift baskets that you made. We know so many families that have been blessed. They couldn't tell us thank you enough for what we've done. Our church does this well. We, we're a giving community. We serve our local community. But sometimes when the organization or many people in our church do this, we feel that we can back down because, yeah, the church is doing this. We have to ask ourselves individually, ask yourself, how am I contributing? Not the organization, not the church. Say to yourself, how am I contributing? How am I stewarding and managing my tribe? Am I doing something that I could be doing more? Or am I doing enough? Maybe you are doing enough. That is an individual question that you should all be asking yourself. And I said this, every uttered word exerts an influence. Every action involves a train of responsibility. No one can live in, to himself in this world, even if he would. Each one forms a part of a great web of humanity, and through the individual threads of, the influence, uh, of influence, we are linked to the universe. Somehow, and I love that story that you told, Kaz, that idea of paying it forward. Somehow, we are all connected. We are all moving in this universe part of God's family as the human race. And we have been given, entrusted this privilege to serve, this privilege to, to go out and not only share the gospel by speaking it, but living it. And so the first domain of our stewardship should start with our tribe. And so I want to ask you, how are you doing? How well are you managing your tribe in that domain of your relationship firstly with your father? Because that should be the first one. That's the one where you get your inspiration and your power and your love and everything from. But then your family, how are you stewarding that? How are you managing that? Not just your immediate family, but your church family. And then your friends groups and the local community and, and, and those on the wider edges. How are you stewarding your tribe? There's a story of a boy, a homeless uh, boy that once saw this beautiful sports car, one of the most expensive sports cars outside of a city. And he was looking at this car, just amazed by this beautiful car. And um, the man um, eventually came out of the shop, lots of bags in his hand, came to the car, opened the car, put the, you know, busy putting the bags in. And he saw this kid just looking at this car, kind of peering in, you know, trying to see how it looks inside. And he was like, man, this is a beautiful car, sir. And, um, you know, and he's kind of talking a little bit about the car. And he's like, wow, where did you get it? He's like, oh, my, uh, my brother gave it to me as a gift. He's like, wow, that is impressive. I, I wish, I, I wish. And, he, and the kid couldn't even finish. And the, and the man said, yeah, I know. You wish you probably had a brother like that. And he's like, no, I wish I could be a brother like that. The, at the heart of stewardship is to be, a, to be a brother like Jesus that loves unconditionally, gives unreservedly, serves even unto death. That's what, it's, what, that's what we've been called to. The problem with this stewardship message, the problem with this management message, is not that we don't know this, because we do. I bet you that almost all of you will walk out of this church and be like, I learned nothing new today. I didn't learn something that I didn't know. 
The problem isn't knowing, the problem is doing. So maybe we should ask ourselves a very blunt question. How am I doing? Am I stewarding my tribe well? And if I'm not, let me get better at it. Let me connect with God more and love with the love of God. It's as easy as that. There's no magic potion. There's no difficulty. There's no abstract theology that you need to know. Love God, love your neighbor. Just do it. Connect with God and and do what he has called you to do. Let 2022 be a year where you steward, where you manage your tribe well because of the grateful living that God has given you. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you and we say thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege that you have given to us to be in this community. Lord, help us to steward it well. Some of us are struggling and we need the help so desperately. We are struggling in whichever capacity, in whichever domain, Lord, and we would love somebody to come and be our hands and our feet and help us with this race because we feel like a quadriplegic. We feel that we don't have legs anymore. We feel we don't have arms anymore. We just, don't, we just can't go on anymore. But we pray that somebody would come and put us in that basket and put us in that boat and put us on that bike and just push us forward, Lord. We pray that people will come and say, I want to be that brother. Lord, maybe we stand in that place where we can be. All of us at some point can serve and all of us can receive. And so I pray, Lord, that we would have fundamentally on the deepest roots of our hearts and on our minds, Lord, that we would understand the principle of reality, that it is all about you and that it's all about love. And the more we love, the more we come in contact with you, the more we become like you by the power of the Holy Spirit, the more in line with reality we'll be, and the more we will find ourselves and become fully human. That's where the beginning of grateful living starts. I pray as we journey through this, Lord, that you would lead and guide us, that this won't be just another sermon that we listen to and be like, oh, this is great theology, that we would not just focus on, on knowing, but that we would start focus on doing. Thank you for everything that you do for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.